Welcome to the show. It's another episode of The Magic Hour. I'm your host, Anthony Alvarado. Today's episode, we have not one, but two special guests. They're both teachers at Portland Underground Grad School. We're going to be talking to Peter Michael Bauer about rewilding and saving the planet or possibly the doom of the planet. We'll find out. That's going to be a conversation that we're going to have first up. Second up, we're going to be talking to Malia Seward about how to create your own quest and build more serendipity and meaning into life. So stick around for that. And I also want to let people know where you can download this episode and past episodes of the show. If you ever miss an episode or want to listen to one again, don't worry. You can go to www.anthonyalvarado.net. I've got all the shows posted right there, free to download. The Magic Hour is now also available as a podcast on iTunes. All right, let's get this party started. Here in the studio with me today is Peter Michael Bauer of Rewilding. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks for having me. So what exactly is Rewilding? Uh, so that's sort of a question that I'm constantly asking and constantly reworking. And it's one of the main premises of the Rewilding 101 class that I teach with pugs is like, what does rewilding mean? And we just kind of explore that for a few weeks. Um, but to me, it's really about uh, returning to a hunter-gatherer way of life, um, specifically an immediate return hunter-gatherer way of life, which is um, the way humans lived for about three million years mm-hmm. in theory uh, mm-hmm. before the agricultural revolution about 10,000 years ago. Right. And how did you first kind of get into this? It's a really interesting idea. Did it develop in a flash or was it a, a series of... Of some soul searching and thinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I feel like it has origins in my youth and, and being a Boy Scout and spending time in nature, uh-huh. uh, maybe in combination with like um, the religious or spiritual aspects of Star Wars or something, you know, kind of <laughs> me, me creating some sort of um, nature based religion in my head kind of shamanistic yeah in a sense you know I I call it animism now right kind of learned that there's a name for it but Uh um yeah just kind of believing that there's a connection between all living things and non-living things and um that that's kind of the baseline for human experience and so I think that kind of foundation as a child um really helped me uh another thing was playing this video game, Civilization. Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> I've played that. It's kind of like Sims, but bigger. Yes, whole exactly, city, yeah. and goes through the, the time span and stuff. And it's interesting because it really brings to light um, mm-hmm. the mythology that we, the unspoken mythology of Civilization. Yeah, we're progressing to bigger and better. Yes, thi- and exactly. then eventually we build a, in the game, you build like a UFO and blast off. Into right, the- there's two two ways to win Civilization. <laughs> One is to colonize the closest solar system or is to kill every other culture. <laughs> what does that say about the way we perceive things in our culture so um yeah i think playing that game you know and i think i don't think that the creators of that game were thinking let's come up with the most subversive uh game ever by bringing to the forefront the myths of civilization i think they were just trying to simplify the way that our culture perceives things and in doing so really you know distilled down the ideas that our culture has about how we live and work and interact in the environment yeah, um, and it does. It feels like 
globally, uh, geopolitically, as a as a culture of the world right now, like that's kind of the end game that we have right, in mind exactly. is we got to get out of here and get to Mars because right, exactly. <laughs> we're trashing the place. Yeah. Which is ironic. Well, I don't know if it's ironic, but it's a weird sort of idea to invest all this time and energy into figuring out how to go completely <laughs> across space and colonize another planet yeah. that is completely inhabit- inhabitable it's, for yeah. humans rather than just making the one that's already habitable, habitable right. more it's, so. or, or It's kind of like you don't want to clean your house so you start house shopping. <laughs> right, yes, right? exactly. Um, so rewilding, uh, I'm imagining that, that this is about um, uh, gathering... Uh, natural plants out in the woods, foraging, hunting, and gathering, learning how to maybe make bow and arrows and, and, and that sort of thing. Am I on the right track? Yeah, absolutely. There's elements of rewilding that involve ancestral technology, so learning how to make a fire by rubbing sticks together, learning how to make a bow and arrow, um, mm-hmm. and as, as well as you know identifying plants and what you can eat and how to eat them and process them. So um, these are actually skills that you teach in your yes. classes. In, uh, I teach some of, of these in, in through Rewild Portland. We teach the actual physical classes. Um, uh-huh. Through the Pugs classes, we teach um, more of the psychological and philosophical aspects of rewilding. So deconstructing okay. the myths that we've created about humanity and our, um, you know, our, our origin story, where we're going, these kinds of things that most people don't, uh, most people take in and don't understand that it's actually a mythology, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so the first class of my Rewilding 101 is called myths and mysteries of prehistory, which I actually turned into a whole four-week class as well. But the first class of the Rewilding 101 is just going through and looking at how we perceive hunter-gatherers in the first three million years of human, uh, the human story and what we know now that isn't true, that people think is common sense. For the, the classic one is, uh, you know, hunter-gatherers died at the age of 35 or you uh-huh. know, 25. Or, you know, there's this idea that we have um, pulled ourselves out of the muck and that civilization has allowed us um, these luxuries of right. lo- longer life, et cetera. But that's actually completely um, inaccurate. Interesting. Um, and that one's like one of the biggest so, myths. So they're finding out that by examining uh, the archaeological uh, remains that, that humans lived longer. Exactly. Longer as well as contemporary hunter-gatherers, you know, living to into their hundreds. But um, uh, some anthropologists did a, like a cross-examination of hunter-gatherer cultures alive today, contemporary ones, and found um, that if they're, uh, if you lived past the age of two, mm-hmm. you were likely to live at least past the age of 65. Right. Okay. Um, so that's the trade-off, though, is that now we have vaccines and we're less likely to have to die in, in, uh, in childbirth. Yes. So there's some things that um, have changed the, the birth rates, but if you look at um, the history of the world or the history of the agricultural revolution... We actually see a decline in lifespan immediately following the introduction of agriculture. Uh. Um, and that happens for various reasons, uh, but a lot of it has to do with diet and lifestyle. Um, for example, when you're farming, it takes eight to 10, or sorry, eight to 12 hours a day of labor to uh-huh. produce the food that you need in order to live. Whereas it, uh, I don't know if that's changed that much as far as how, how much most people have to work on a daily well, basis. Well, absolutely. With <laughs> machines now doing a lot of the agricultural wor- work, we've kept this idea of like the eight-hour workday. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, that, you, you bring up machines, and that this is a tangent, but something I've been thinking about lately is, you know, we've got self-driving cars around the corner. I think those will be on the road in a few years. Totally. And that's going to put a lot of people out of jobs, Uber right. and delivery drivers right. and truckers and stuff. And that's just one more example. You know, if we can have cars that that 
dry themselves and take care of that sort of thing, then it can't be that much harder to teach a robot how to make a pancake and fry an egg. There goes the service industry. Right. We're, we're technolo- technologizing ourselves <laughs> out of jobs, right, it seems exactly. like. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the question is... Uh, we have technology and it, it feels like it's a runaway horse or it's a it's has its own volition. Who's who's steering this this and who's driving it? And it seems like kind of the questions that you're bringing up are um, taking a look at at our civilization and our technologies and questioning where do we want to go with this? Right. Well, and so the, the contrast of the eight to 12 hour work week is that immediate return hunter gathers when surveyed across the planet only required two to three hours a day of labor to procure procure food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having a more leisurely lifestyle that didn't uh, involve heavily heavy labor yeah. allowed our bodies to live longer. I mean, um, that, that sounds pretty ideal. You gather gather <laughs> your food for the day and then, you know, That's you can not chill out. Including, <laughs> you know, processing the food right. and cooking it. But those are all still things we have to do with agriculture on top of the eight to 12 hours as well. So you know, there's a there was a trade-off. You know, people think that we we switched to agriculture for safety and security and things like that, but there really isn't a, a clear-cut answer as to why, because it is completely inefficient um, and destructive of soil bases, all kinds of stuff. So, looking at rewilding and and sort of the technological progression that we're at now, it's it's sort of um, there's a few inherent uh, premises in rewilding. One is that civilization is unsustainable. Um, if we look at, yeah, you know, the fact apparent. that we're creating the Anthropocene's extinction or the, the sixth extinction event here, um, we, you know, looking at that, looking at the workings of civilization and how it's, um, and I, I have, when I say civilization, I'm not meaning a civil society. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, I'm talking about sedentary cultures with hierarchies that practice agriculture um, that leads to uh, population growth, which leads to ecological destruction and ev- an eventual collapse. Yeah. I mean, is do you think that there's a way to have a stable society that that um that doesn't lead to that the overpopulation and overuse of of natural resources and collapse? I mean, is there a way to to have that without um just kind of I mean, what what would that look like? How would we get there? So, it's difficult to imagine um what it's going to look like because what we're looking at now in terms of comparing and contrasting civilization to what was before if we look at immediate return hunter-gatherers those were societies and our our societies today who have a regenerative relationship with the land base that they live on Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a lot of debate you know about the the migrations of human and human uh, homo sapiens and megafauna extinctions and things and I don't have a doubt in my mind that humans, um, specifically Homo sapiens, had an impact on the megafauna extinctions and mm-hmm. definitely played mm-hmm. a part in it. But I think it's a much and more... that was pre-agrarian, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That was through uh, migrations. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also a massive um, evidence that climate change was a huge contributing factor to the megafauna extinctions. So um, we can't uh, look at Homo sapiens and think, oh, hunter-gatherers were bad. They were destroying their environments, et cetera. It was just a different world. We weren't there. But what we do know is that within the last 5,000 years, uh, you know, our population's grown exponentially and we've yeah. destroyed most of the planet post-agriculture. And we can right. link it to agriculture specifically and the Fertile Crescent and the, the activities that were going on there specifically. Um, so I guess my question is, is there a way that we can not doom the planet and not kill off 
you know, the environment and, and all these diff- all these species that are are going through mass extinction. Is there a way that we can uh, stop that and still have flushing toilets and and baked bread, or do you think that we have to kind of go fully back to uh, a sort of a primal existence to to stave that off? Um, I think that anything that's been created by the unsustainable industrial culture will be gone at some point. Um, You know, there's a lot of ideas that we have to abandon the comforts of civilization in order to return to a hunter-gatherer way of life. But those are, again, things that we kind of dispel in the myths of prehistory. Mm. Um, You know, flushing toilets are a really modern invention and are things that, (laughs) um, you know... uh, Specifically, they ruin our bodies. They give us hemorrhoids. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, health concerns. Yeah, I have a friend toilets. who's really into the, I think it's called a squatty potty. Yes, the squatty potty. Yeah, <laughs> Like a dais, <laughs> yeah. a wooden dais yeah. around his toilet. Yes. He squats um, on it. Yeah, we're not, we're not supposed to sit upright when we take a dump. We're supposed to be squatting. Our digestive uh-huh. tract lines up correctly. If we don't do that, we have to push it out, which causes hemorrhoids and other things. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, again, there's there's just ways of looking at comfort in a, through a different lens, I right. think. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a that's a big deal with rewilding and making those comforts um, kind of known or available to people is a, is definitely an aspect of making a smoother transition for uh-huh. people who are uncomfortable. But I really don't think for me, rewilding isn't about um, the level of comfort as much as it is about uh, a sustainable subsistence strategy. Mm-hmm. And if we look at First Nations people here in the United States and Canada, we can see that they were here for, you know, um, as far as science is concerned, at least 15,000 years and had regenerative land management practices in place um, that allowed them to continue living regeneratively until colonization from Europeans um, occurred. Yeah. And so we're, a lot of the restoration activities now are based on tradi- what's called traditional ecological knowledge, which is uh, a collection of ancestral land management techniques by the First Nations people and, um, you know, there's a lot of efforts all over the country right now going into restoring those because, you know, especially like in places like California that are fire prone. Right. They're now reintroducing fire regimes that were part of the land management practices of Native Americans because they're realizing these landscapes need to be burned. Otherwise, yeah. they, they create these massive wildfires by the, you know, people keep putting them out. But they're my, my dad worked for the U.S. government, uh, the Forest Service as a as a biologist and a firefighter, and he'd go off on these fires every summer in California and he'd always say, you know, we really, we, we shouldn't be putting that, these out and right. everybody knows it, but there's so much momentum behind exactly. the industry to, to yes. fight these fires. Um, and of course now you have uh, a warmer climate, which right. is also contributing totally. to these wildfires. Totally. Uh, one thing I think a lot of people don't take into consideration is how recently the megafauna are gone. and. Right. Woolly mammoths and right, which and they were here five thousand years ago, right here in the Willamette Valley. There were woolly mammoths, oh, yeah. which is not very long ago. Yeah, okay. you know, um, that's why they just recently uncovered one under the OSU football stadium. <laughs> I don't know if you heard about <laughs> no, that. They were like redoing the field, and they found a woolly mammoth <laughs> just right there in the end zone. That's um, pretty crazy. Yeah, uh, and thinking about that kind of thing, I think about limits to growth. Humans, Homo sapiens, we used to have a lot more limits to growth. Mm-hmm. Um, culturally imposed but as well as environmentally and i think when we look at um civilization specifically without the megafauna we really don't have a lot of environmental limits to growth anymore yeah 
And then you also have a you religion. You don't have to worry about a saber-toothed tiger right, exactly. jumping on us. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot less predation. Yeah. Um, the two main limits to growth within civilization are massive diseases, which, you know, with the advent of antibiotics, we're able to um, stave those off. So, uh -huh. you know, but indigenous people, some of the ones that I've studied anyway, particularly in the United States or in the Americas, um, it, it looks as if they had growth um, you know if you look at like the Mayan culture Martin Brechtel talks about how they have this religious concept where um, and this is Mayans post collapse so they had a civilization they built pyramids all uh -huh. that kind of stuff and I don't know if collapse is the right word to use with their with their nation state or whatever you want to call it but uh, post all of that they have this religious um, cultural belief that creating a thing even just like a knife like a stone knife is ridiculously spiritually expensive and in order to do that you have to do all this ritual enactment and stuff like that so interesting you know he says like the idea of building an automobile would make you a hundred lifetimes of spiritual it's almost offerings. like you're spending karma points to bring yes, exactly. a creation into the world yes exactly so that kind of belief system would prevent growth so you mm -hmm. have because our environmental limits to growth disappeared we have to have culturally imposed ones yeah but civilization has the opposite of that. You know, like <laughs> yeah. if you look at the Bible, one of the original uh, publications, it says, be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. Um, and when you're an agriculturalist farming community that's based on slave labor and, and lots of human labor, it makes sense to have a lot of children to be farmhands. And it increases your economic status within a, a growth-based economy. Mm -hmm. So instead of creating cultural limits to growth, we created, uh, you know, incentives right. to growth. Um, and I think, you know, for me, I don't know what the solution is to that. I it, mean, does, it does seem like there's not any sort of balance. I mean, the there's this a game that you play where you, you, you make stuff, you make money, you make prestige. You, you know, people want to, well, some people want to be, you know, Trump-like or something. Right. Like, just get, get more for myself. Right, exactly. And there's no, there's no balance to that. There's no. nothing in our culture that... Um, that seems to to tell those people, hey, enough. Right. You know, there's that's not <laughs> totally that's not good. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's just gonna, you know, on some level, I look at civilization as uh, a culture in general, but but if we're looking at at civilization specifically, I look at it as a natural disaster. <laughs> um, you know, ecologically speaking, yeah. I, I think of it as a an ecological phenomenon that's a force of nature that works exactly like a natural disaster. I mean, if you look, if you compare it to like a wildfire it's going to burn until it runs out of fuel to burn. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we think of ourselves as conscious animals who can make decisions about things. But in the reality, I don't think that that's true. I think that we're just, uh, I don't want to say cogs in a machine, but we're just a drops virus. of water <laughs> in a in a river that's flowing a certain direction. And we can, as individuals and groups, try to, try yeah. to shift it, I you mean, know? It, it seems like you're, you're trying to shift that the flow and there's, there's a huge amount of, uh, it's a waterfall, it's a fire hose. We're going in this certain direction. And, and it does, but it seems to me like you're somebody who's trying to shift the flow of, of where things are headed. So I have to ask you, do you feel hopeful? Do you feel like we can, uh, we can save the planet or are we, are we hosed? Well, I don't think that we can save the planet per se. I don't, uh, that, that concept is kind of beyond me at this point in, uh, in terms of like hold, trying to hold the complexity of that. Yeah, that makes it such um, a binary thing, right? Yeah, I, I think, what do we really mean by that? You know, are humans going to be alive in the long run here? I don't know. Um, I think if humans are alive in 500 or 1,000 years, we will probably be living a lot close, more closely to what our ancestors lived. 
will we be alive in 10,000 years? I don't know. Um, you know, there's a lot of climatologists who've already sort of given humanity its... Uh, it's, it's end date. Right. It seems know. like, it, I mean, if we're around in, in that kind of epoch of time, we'll be something different Absolutely. at that time, you know? Yeah. And maybe that change is a part of what would have to happen totally. for us to exist at yeah. that point in time. I do think that... that um, the homo genus will continue, but I do think that will evolve in various ways. Yeah. Um, well, let's yeah, let's talk a little bit about prehistory. I know that a lot of this is informed by your study totally. of prehistory. I've been fascinated lately, and we, we talked a little, little bit about this on a previous show. That new research is coming out where they're taking a look at the prehistoric records of uh, of hominids and uh-huh. saying there was a bunch of of different kinds of people-like right. beings walking yeah. around. You had, I think, the Denisovans yeah. and the this and the that. Yeah. yeah. And and the, this one guy, you know, I was reading in a paper, a, a news article about it, and this archaeologist was saying, yeah, it was a lot like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Just, yeah, <laughs> right. like yeah. orcs and elves totally. and dwarves. So, There's like that hobbit uh, yeah. genus they found on some island or uh-huh. something. Yeah. Um, so does that... I mean, when talking about the things we've been talking about and then looking at that um, at that idea, you wonder if we were sort of like the meanest uh, strain in the batch that, that <laughs> like pushed pushed aside, you know, the Neanderthal. Uh, although we have some strains of that in our totally. DNA as yeah. well. So it's very complicated. Yeah. So the, there's a couple of sort of recent theories around those. And... Um, I don't. I don't think that Homo sapiens were necessarily the meanest, but that is like a common idea in, among a lot of anthropologists. But <laughs> um, now, what's happening is they're finding. Um, recently, they found uh, five skulls mm-hmm. all, all together in the same context, um, and they all were different shapes, which is called morphology. That's the the shape of a skull. And when they find different skulls with different morphologies, they've just given them all different um, species names. But this was a problem because never before have we found skulls in the same context next to each other of different morphologies. Yeah. Because yeah. now if they had found all five of these different skulls in different places by themselves, they would have each gotten a different species. It's like these name. guys were hanging around the same fire. So they have to be <laughs> the same species, essentially, is what, ah. is what they're saying. So now what that pulls into question is, are all of the species that they've labeled as different species different species, or are we all the same and they're kind of starting to think that we're all the same, you know. And so what they did a cross-examination of modern uh, or contemporary human skulls and found the morphology was varying enough that also matched the whole progression of all these different homo species that they've labeled. So if, I, if I'm if i understanding you right, the new emerging theory is that maybe all these different kind of species have blended into current day human population absolutely oh, that, or, or rather that they were all just different offshoots but that we could we were all homo sapiens uh-huh. or actually what they're saying is homo erectus uh-huh. so you know neanderthal denisovans um and homo sapiens we all evolved from homo erectus so mm-hmm. the fact that we could interbreed with neanderthals in theory implies that they weren't a separate species right. per right. se um but that rather and so now they're actually looking at evolution in a very different way and instead of being a tree with different branches, now they're starting to call them bushes. So instead of you know Neanderthals and Denisovans being on a completely different branch than us, we're all in the same bush because we could interbreed and have fertile offspring. 
means technically we're the same species under the old definition of species. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing that with the eastern coyote, too. The eastern coyote is actually a half coyote, half wolf. It's a hybrid, but we right. call it a coyote, and it does what coyotes do, but it's actually this blend because the the divergence, I think, from coyote and wolf was about 200,000 years ago, but they can still breed and have fertile offspring. So what's the difference between them? So I, I want to bring it back to, sure. the, to rewilding, mm-hmm. Um, cause we've just got a few moments left, but, um, what, what's something that, uh, the listener can, can take away? What's an idea that a listener, uh, to this, the show can, um, maybe start looking at in their own life, in their own, uh, approach to, to, uh, civilization, to the environment. Yeah. I think just thinking that what we think we know about the human story is, a lot of it is based on old mythology. And I would recommend really reading into modern interpretations of prehistory um, to mm-hmm. really get a, a more fully encompassing story of uh, the human, you know, just the human story. Yeah. <laughs> and and you go into that and uh, you've got a few different classes at Pugs, uh, Portland Underground Grad School that are going to be, you're going to be offering some in, in January. Yep. And could you give us kind of a rundown of some of the different options yeah. that people can plug into? Um, so the Rewilding 101 class is just kind of an overview. We go through the myths and mysteries of prehistories in class one. We talk about domestication and how that's altered our DNA and our culture over the last 10,000 years. We talk about um, indigenous land management practices, and we talk about barriers to rewilding, things that are preventing us from actually doing it and why. Um, and it's just kind of an all-encompassing class on what is rewilding. And then I have a rewilding 201, which is a lot more like a, a think tank of how to put the theory into practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a, taking the theory to the next level and then coming up with things you can do in your own life or collectively um, to kind of further the, the movement of rewilding. And then I also offer a class called the Myths and Mysteries of Prehistory, which is kind of a way bigger uh, perspective of prehistory than we are able to go over in the Rewilding 101 class. Um, a lot more about evolution, evolutionary theory and things like that. And then uh, I'm theoretically going to be offering a class called Social Justice and Rewilding because to me, rewilding is a collective venture. And if we want to make it accessible to everyone, then social justice is um, deeply seated within that idea. We've been talking with Peter Michael Bauer about rewilding. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. You're listening to KXRY Portland at 107.1 and 91.1 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. My next guest on today's show is Malia Seward, who is also teaching at PUGS, Portland Underground Grad School. She's teaching a class on... Finding a quest, finding your own quest. And we're going to be talking to her about what that entails. Malia, welcome to the show. Thank you. So what what does it mean to go on a quest? To me, that immediately conjures to mind knights and dragons and that sort of thing. But that, like fairy tale stuff. So what does it mean in 2016, and uh, fast approaching 2017, to go on a quest? So it's interesting. So when I I did I taught this class last fall, mm-hmm. and I asked my students what they thought of 
as a quest before we actually even met in person. Okay. Um, and a lot of people had thoughts that weren't necessarily dragons and whatnot, <laughs> but were really um, about travel. Uh-huh, right? yeah. And about going places that you didn't necessarily know Like a journey. Existed. Right, like a journey that yeah. existed, that, that, that was about travel and about leaving home. I guess I also think of like a vision quest, like I'm going to maybe go out into the woods and I'm going to wait for, for some kind of knowledge or inspiration. Right. Is that a, appropriate to... Well, the thing about going to the woods and waiting for knowledge and inspiration <laughs> is that it's not particularly questful. Uh-huh. Okay. It's more passive. Right. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and so what what I'm working with my students to do is really to start thinking about the world that we live in and the ordinariness of it um, and finding the extraordinary in that. Okay. So it could be that, you know, people are going to go on a long journey. In fact, some of the quests that came out of the last class were that people actually leaving home mm-hmm. to sort of have an experience and come back changed. Um, but then there were other people who um, who used this opportunity as a way to sort of think differently about the life that they're already living, mm-hmm. um, to walk in their neighborhood in a very different way. So to it sort can of be more of an inward journey. Yeah, or even like a way of um, a way of having a kind of a micro macro experience mm-hmm. right where like your inner where you're sort of paying attention to what you pay attention to I like that um, and you're starting to like look at the world through a lens that you're creating right okay okay so for example um, one of one of the students uh, last time um, her quest was about creating it was sort of about gamifying her life a little bit okay um, and creating using using game theory which is something that we talk about a lot in the class um, as a way to um to find ways to make her mental health better. Yeah. Because she struggled with anxiety and depression. Yeah. Right? Um, and so she used she used um, her quest as an opportunity to sort of check in with herself in a regular way um, to make a painful thing playful. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of it, if she chooses, um, to have something to share that is also something that could help other people who suffer from the same kind of thing. So that's one example. I've done something similar to that, uh, gamifying your life. Uh, one summer, I felt like I just wasn't, I felt like I was in a rut and I wasn't getting out there and doing much. And so I made this big list and assigned points. Uh, one point going for a hike, two points going camping, three points, you know, going to the coast and kind of made this big long list of, of stuff that I wanted to do and then turned the summer into a game. And it really got me out there more. I ended up having a really action-packed summer because I gamified it, as you say. Right. I mean, the the thing is, is that it's really hard. It's hard to sort of stumble on joy and mm-hmm. pleasure when you're sort of sitting at home alone, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so finding ways to um, to make rule to make rule-based decisions about how you live your life that get you kind of out of the habituated ways that we all live um, can be a helpful way to break out of ruts and routines. Ruts and routines. How did you? come into this idea it's such an interesting idea did is it from your own uh life did you kind of start with doing the trying this out for yourself and i did (laughs) (laughs) um how did that come about about 10 years ago and this is this is sort of a classic story right Uh in the same way that quests are sort of a classic story in literature but Uh um i i had a job that i thought was my dream job um and uh and I was asked to, to, I was an editor at a publishing company in New York City. Ooh. And I was asked to create. That's my dream job. <laughs> <laughs> I was asked to create a spreadsheet of um, 
of, of which is of course like the, the dream killer right there right <laughs> yeah. uh, but i was asked to create a spread a spreadsheet uh of the next five years okay. um of all the books that i would acquire and develop and at the end of the day kind of what those books would make in terms of money um and it was this stark thing right it's like a realization like there's, there's nothing like an ex- my right, on an excel yeah. spreadsheet that oh make you realize <laughs> like yes or no i think that would scare just about anybody <laughs> i mean it's a great exercise everybody should do that exercise but i but i went into the meeting uh, with my boss about that exercise and he was like this looks terrific and mm. i was like this looks like somebody else's job because it's <laughs> not how i want to spend the next five years um and so I quit in the meeting, wow. which, and I'd been there for almost a decade. Like it was not at all planned. Um, and, uh, and I gave two months notice and sort of named my successor. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when it was time to sort of figure out what to do next, I had this realization that like, even though I had all this experience, I was actually much more pigeonholed than what I was when I had much less experience. Interesting. And so I was going to yeah. find myself in a similar situation if I didn't get closer to this thing about like, what do I pay attention, like paying attention to what I pay attention to. Mm. Yeah. The experiences that you have kind of propel you to keep doing what you've been doing because right. you've gotten, you've gotten the skill set for that thing. Right. And yeah. I realized, you know, I, I went to the work the same way every day. I mm-hmm. kind of knew a lot of people who shared my same email address um, but even like getting from closed networks to open networks to sort of like, you know, changing who you know and mm-hmm. who you run into and how you organize your time and attention and so, money. So it sounds like you, you reached this point in your life where you said, I want to shake things up. I want a new experiences and I want to uh, get out of the routine that I've been in. Right. And and finding another job or going to grad school, which were uh-huh. sort of the things that I was looking at, were going to put me in a very similar situation. Sure. Yeah. Than the one I was in that I wasn't happy about, but I didn't know why. So what'd you do? So what I did was I made three, I, I created three rules. Uh, the first rule was I had to follow an impulse every day, which I don't recommend. <laughs> like <laughs> no. what? Give me an example impulse. Um, like my impulse would be like, I'm going to eat a big bowl of macaroni well you know you're walking down the street and you see you see somebody like so for example i um i you know i lived in at the time i lived in brooklyn i lived in park slope uh and i would walk down the street and every day i would see like the same guy sitting in front of um of a sort of card table with things like like sort of brochures and whatnot around and Mm -hmm. nobody would ever stop and i was like what is it this, like everybody's probably a little bit curious, but they're but not going to deviate from their normal. Right. And I was a little curious, yeah. right? Like, I, but if you're following an impulse, like gotcha. that little curiosity means that you actually stop. And of course, like a week later, I was with him sitting at his table. Um, and what he did was he he had he had this uh, this organization called the Women's Press Collective, um, and he helped low income people figure out how to create basically newspapers and media in their own environments. I don't know why he was in Park Slope except for probably to raise money. Mm. But um, but I sort of met this entire sort of like community that I wouldn't have met had I not. Um, and that's just one example of many. But mm-hmm. but the point is, is that that I actually paid attention to like the curiosity that was sort of omnipresent. That you've been ignoring because that curiosity was wasn't a part of your busy routine. Right. Right. So what were the other two rules that you set for yourself? Um, the second rule was I had to... Uh, work in the informal economy for cash. Oh. So, um, I did have some savings, not a lot, but a little. Um, and so I sort of c- covered my basic expenses, um, you know, with savings for for a little for a little while while I could sort of figure out what what my next step was. 
But anything above that, I had to actually make. Um, but I wanted to like not make money by having like a regular job, but actually doing sort of odd jobs so that I would meet people that I wouldn't ever encounter in any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, getting out of the habituated ways that we I'm going to find one job and just do that job and you, you're opening yourself up to all these different experiences. Right. And, yeah. So I answered Craigslist ads and I helped people move and I babysat and I also sort of got out of my class structure that I was sort of mm-hmm. in um, and sort of explored differently mm-hmm. um, and met all kinds of people that I would never have met otherwise. Um, it's almost like you were kind of forcing yourself to look at the unseen rules of your own life. Totally. Yeah. I dig it. Um, and I, and out of, out of those things, like a couple, I mean, sort of like where those two things kind of like converge those first, the first rule and the second rule. Um, I may, I created with a couple other people, I created two groups. One was called almost emotionally available. And it was a dating <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> event. And the other one was called almost economically viable, which was, um, a fake networking event. Um, and <laughs> they both actually started making money pretty, pretty quickly. Um, but uh, and then the third rule was I couldn't take a full time job just because I was scared. Mm-hmm. I could take a full time job if it felt like the right thing, but it had, but it, you know, mm-hmm. I needed to sort of go on this, on this quest. You had to give yourself the time to to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And to experience it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and out of all that, uh, first of all, it was one of the most creative parts of at, like years of my life. It was a year, mm-hmm. a little over a year. Was that um, a pre decided? Like, okay, I'm going to take one year and I'm going to, or just it felt like the right amount of time. It wasn't. It ended up being about 14 or 16, 14, 15 okay. months. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, um, but I sort of figured out what the next thing I wanted to do was. Um, and so it ended when I wrote the longest cover letter in the history of the of cover letters <laughs> <laughs> to an organization uh, that did, uh, they used theater in, in organizations. They used improv mm-hmm. um, as a tool for self-discovery and um and i got interested in that during the impulse experiments Mm -hmm. so and you wouldn't have found that that next step if you hadn't taken this time to explore and go on a quest yes yeah um oh that's that's really cool it it makes me think of uh joseph campbell's idea of the hero cycle where the hero in the the monomyth the fairy tale is the myth that happens according to joseph campbell in every uh, story: The hero goes off on a quest, experiences trials and and uh, tribulations and challenges, and then comes back richer for it. And right. it's almost like, in you're suggesting that in our modern day lifestyle, we kind of have to force ourselves to take the to reach reach out of our comfort zone and experience the that kind of quest attitude because it might not necessarily happen to us we have to happen to it i mean yeah that's true i mean usually like in the in in, in, i go into uh, i don't want to put words in your mouth no no yeah i go into joseph campbell um in class okay we 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 look at um we look at quite a bit of joseph campbell actually um and like the notion of creating of finding allies Mm -hmm. which is like sort of central also to a quest but but the thing about the joseph campbell hero's journey is that like people get a call yeah. Right? Yeah. Like there's, there's the call this moment, to action. Right. When it's like, this isn't exactly working for me and I don't know what else yeah. is, but I'm going to go into some unknown thing. And another interesting thing about the, the Joseph Campbell comparison is that that structure is based on these ideas of initiation, of an mm-hmm. initiation ritual, which we don't really have 
nowadays. No, we have a lot of choices. Yeah, we just the <laughs> never-ending choices. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So, so the the four things that I use as like sort of as constraints to help people think about how they want to design mm-hmm. whatever whatever sort of makes sense for them are time, like right, mm-hmm. money, time, money, attention, mm-hmm. and connection. So, what we pay attention to, how we spend our time, what we spend money on. And who we spend it, and who we spend that time with. Okay, so, so you would suggest people examining constraints, ways that they would change or kind of make rules yeah. about time, money, connection. I see. Yeah, I mean specific, but it's very open ended. It's extremely open ended. What are yeah. what are some of the different things that students have come up with using those ideas? Um, let's see. There's where there's um. Well, so there's uh, there were a couple people in the class who were one one woman actually was um, was laid off. Mm-hmm. Like I think week three, she got the notice that at the end oh, of the wow. that in like three months she was going to be laid off, and so she had so her quest became extremely time bound. Yeah, um, and also currency bound, right? Yeah. Um, and so she created a quest that she called Fun Employment. I encourage people to name their quests mm-hmm. so that there's a signifier, right? Um, that they can use as kind of a shorthand to keep themselves accountable but also to tell other people about it which is also part of this is what is what does it mean to be to be questing in community uh-huh. right um uh, but she created a series of um of of rules around how she was going to change who she knew and how she was going to change kind of like what she how she went about being more curious um i'm, I'm like i'm not at liberty to go into the details because it's hers but but that was sort of but that was a that was kind of the gist um another person um created a quest around storytelling um he's a landscape architect and he um and he has these four different sort of types of stories that he wants to talk about in terms of um how gardening and getting closer to nature frees people Mm -hmm. um and one of them started with um with Alcatraz actually mm. um, and all these interviews that he has of um, of a particular prisoner who was given the ability to garden um, the grounds mm-hmm. um, and sort of what the impact of that was on sort of becoming free at least you know internally so there's the gamut was is wide yeah it's very personal it depends on the person's mm-hmm. situation and what they're looking for and where they're at in life yeah. um, one of the things I noticed that you've talk about is imbuing time with meaning and that's one of the constraints is time could you talk a little bit about uh, what how do, how is how does that process into a quest the imbuing time with meaning um well i think first of all sort of the thing about doing a quest is it's almost it's a little bit like sort of drawing a a circle around yourself and creating a stage mm-hmm. regardless of where you are yeah, it's like okay. creating a stage in everyday life almost like a role Mm, I wouldn't say a role. I would say more like it's performative. Okay. Not only for you, but for others, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be uncomfortable because of that. But there's something about, I think, um, like making what I call non-or- non-ordinary time. Okay. Right? Which is like what happens when you go on a retreat, mm-hmm. which is usually sort yeah, of or you go, Yeah, when you travel, time slows down. Exactly. Uh, a two-week vacation feels like a month. Exactly. Three, yeah. Right. But what if, but what if you were to f- find a way to do that once a week uh-huh. or once a day? Right. Where you actually slow time down and make it not ordinary, but right. actually okay. really extraordinary, right? So like 
I right now I'm in the middle of a very long six year quest. Mm. Um, and the goal of that is to build a body of work, which mm-hmm. means that I write every day for about 10 minutes. And then there are other constraints that are weekly and monthly and yearly mm-hmm. that are longer. But my 10 minutes a day is total non-ordinary time. And I do it in the same way that I, you know, I brush my teeth every day also, right. thankfully. I don't like sort of <laughs> save that up and do it all on Sunday. Sure. Right. For the week. Yeah. Um, that's not how we, how we do things, right? <laughs> which is good, which is good for everybody. But um, I but think I'd, I'd try that if I thought it would work. <laughs> you know, just I'm gonna brush my teeth for the week. Right. I'm just gonna floss for <laughs> t- for an hour yeah. on Sunday while I watch the Gilmore. I don't Marvel shower week. every yeah. day. I just get it all done <laughs> once once a week. Right. Yeah. So so you you it sounds like you have a ritual uh, around writing mm-hmm. that happens every day, and it's like a time constraint. It's also a, an intention that you're you're making. Right. It's this also thing. a space constraint. Right. There's something mm-hmm. about going to the same sort of yeah. place every day or like, you know, even if you're not. I think that that's really powerful. That's something that uh, that I have written about in in my work is this idea of creating a place where if you're going to write or you're, you're doing some other kind of creative enterprise, if you can go to the same place and then that lets your mind know, like, OK, I'm here to work on this one thing. And I, I had a superstition almost when I was working on my last book where I had to go to the same table at the same coffee shop at the same time and use the same kind of pencil and notebook. And it it made it um, almost like a hypnotic trance that I could right. enter when I got to that spot um, and, and had everything set up just like that. Then it was very easy to slip into the creative moment and to get work done. Right. It's um, it, right. It's like, it's like having a head start, right? Mm-hmm. Like Michael Cunningham, the, uh, the novelist who wrote the hours when he, before he wrote that book, he knew he had a book in him mm-hmm. and he rented a space at Hunter, I think okay. university in New York. And, um, and he went to the same very tiny, very uncomfortable room every day. And his rule yeah. was, I have to be here for two hours. I can't do anything else except yeah. write. Yeah. I cannot write also, but I can't do anything else instead of it. And there was, there was that writer that would, I think he would go down, I want to say it was like maybe Cheever or Updike or somebody who would take the elevator to the basement of his mm-hmm. place and like strip down to his underwear and write. Like for some reason that was his his ritual that got him there. I, I forget who that was. but um, We'll Google that after. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of a part of this is about intentionally creating these these rituals and these moments and and um you also i noticed that you you talk some about serendipity and luck mm-hmm. and designing for serendipity and luck um so how do you how does one go about doing that so the class in january that i'm going to teach on this i'm actually expanding the quest class to include two extra classes on specifically designing for serendipity um but i think that there's sort of a there are some ways of viewing the world, mm-hmm. um, some orientations that I think you can have that encourage things like um, the permeability between yourself and the outer world. That's one thing. Um, movement. Like whether, whether you're more... Um, open. Open to what's going on around mm-hmm. you or not. Yeah. Are you paying attention to the yeah. things around you or are you on your phone? Are yeah. you, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I yeah, I think about that a lot. Um, just how how easy it is to disengage from the world and be on your phone, and there, you know you've always got this little 
this little black mirror in your hand that'll entertain you, that'll tell you a joke or something interesting or something scary or make you upset or make you... Or it's a feedback loop and I'll tell you how many how many yeah. steps you just walked. How many steps you just walked <laughs> or how many people are paying attention to what you had for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's its own little reality. And I definitely think that we're losing um, a certain awareness of what's around us uh, because of that. Because so many times we don't let ourselves get bored. We don't mm-hmm. let ourselves get um, unamused. Right. If we're ever unamused, we can be entertained immediately. And so I think, yeah, that's definitely something that uh, it's a condition of, of the human experience that is changing. Um, and I'm, I kind of miss being bored sometimes. <laughs> I've been doing uh, something along the lines of making making a rule for myself. I've been trying to take one day a week and just unplug and it's actually very relaxing. You know, the first the first few times I did it, I felt like, oh, my gosh, I need to know what's going on in the news and what's going on on Facebook. But now it's become uh, a time. I, you know, I, yeah, I get some reading done. I listen to some vinyl records and go on a walk and it feels great. But it took making that a rule. It wouldn't it, it's. It should happen on its own, but it, it just wasn't happening on its own that I would just naturally take that time to myself. So, um, I mean, the other thing is, is that if everybody around you is also on their devices, mm-hmm. right? Or if everybody around you who's sort of in a quote unquote market, whether you're looking for an apartment or a job or um, a date mm-hmm. or some kind of change, everybody's busy. And they're usually doing the exact same things to get the thing that they want and not and not very well, not very efficiently. Yeah, everybody's and, trying to find an apartment or a date and, and they're all on the same. And they're all doing the same things. On the same website, right? yeah. Um, so if you can think for a second and spend more time getting creative about what people aren't doing, but also think about the constraints mm-hmm. of like who the, who the people are who sort of control the things that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have a much different experience. Give me an example. So here's an example. Um, finding an apartment, right? So most people go on Rent Hop or Craigslist or the places sure. or Street Easy or the places where you would find an apartment, um, and they're busy, they're um, impatient, and they want to see what they what they're possibly going to get. So they're probably going to check the box with has images. Mm-hmm. They're probably going to um, you know search in the neighborhoods that they want, and they're going to create the the parameters around, you know, the price prices and whatever. Sure, they're going to yeah. see like the 27 apartments that come up that meet those criteria. But if you stop for a second and think who has the apartment that I want, it's usually people who are older who might not understand the internet that, that well, who might be more interested in a phone conversation than a text message. Right. Um, and who probably don't have images on their picture and probably are talking about something about the apartment that has absolutely no resonance for the person looking for it. Like the hallway is amazing and yeah. whatever. <laughs> um, and so it's those one liner ads that were not done by brokers mm-hmm. that were not done by people who are slick. Mm-hmm. Like that's where the gem apartments are, but that's where nobody can find because they're all sort of looking for the quick deal. So like if you think about like what the constraints are and what the, the and, and not use, only for yourself, but out there. Yeah. Use the, empathy yeah. as a way to think about like what the experience is for the other person on that transaction transaction. Everything mm-hmm. can change. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a small shift. And I guarantee you, you'll like like you can you can do a lot when you think about kind of what the p- 
parameters are in the world mm-hmm. that we're all sort of, you know, using and, and thinking about. Whether it's like an algorithm um, and like what are the underlying assumptions around that mm-hmm. that are going to give you a particular kind of information um, and how can you sort of shift yourself to so change what, what you see. What's one piece of advice you could give to the listener at home about that is interested in in trying this out and looking at a quest and and um, changing the way that they're going about their day to day? What's uh, something that is there a thing that anybody could just try out in a, in a day and experience? I mean, I th- I think I would start with how I spend my time. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just how I spend my time, but how I spend my time and how does that feel? And taking a look at that and examining it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we all get 168 hours. Mm-hmm. What are you doing with yours? Right. Um, yeah. And where are the places where that's just sort of, you know, going through your fingers? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to to think about, um, I don't know, when you when you sort of figure out what you want more of. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of ways to, to figure out how to get that. But I think um, sort of... Spending a minute and and really thinking about what you already have and all the stuff that's like right around you is um, pretty key. Yeah. So the class is called How to Create a Quest. How to Create a Quest and imbue your time with more joy, more meaning, and more connection. And this is going to be taught at Pugs this January. Tell us a little bit about the Pugs experience um, as maybe not everybody's familiar with what Pugs is. So Portland Underground Grad School was started a little over a year ago. Every month there are between, usually between four and six classes, uh, ranging on a wide variety of topics. Um, And people from the community come together and learn together um, over the course of about four to six weeks. Um, There's also, I think, some workshops happening that are more one day Mm -hmm. um, now. But but it's a chance for people to, to get familiar with something they might not otherwise know about and also to do that in community with people that they might not meet so it's a terrific way to continue to learn and also to continue to grow your own community awesome thanks for being on the show Malia it's been fantastic talking with you great thank you for having me yeah for today's final segment, I'm in the studio with the founder of Pugs, Portland Underground Grad School, Douglas Soy. Welcome to the show. Hey, Anthony. So, I, I, you know, full disclosure, I taught a Pugs class a few months back. I taught DIY magic. And, and it's great. I really enjoyed the class. It was so much fun. And I'm really happy to have you on the show to let our listeners know about Portland Underground Grad School. So, yeah, tell us about, about Pugs. Well, Pugs is school for lifelong learners. It's this idea that, well, it started from what I wanted, which was I'm someone who just really loves learning and going to class and getting connected to people. And um, every year I kept on thinking, I want to go back to grad school. And it was like, oh, I want to get a master's in philosophy or I want to learn more about AI. Right. Or, I've thought about doing that. Like, I want to just seriously take philosophy just 
because it'd be so much fun to be studying that this stuff that I want to know more about. Right. And, you know, I feel like, you know, reading on the Internet or like even checking books out from the library is just not the same experience as going to school. And having conversations and, with other students. That's right. And I think yeah. it's just a deeper form of learning. And mm-hmm. so I essentially created the thing I wanted because I didn't want to go back to grad school and pay tens of thousands of dollars or even like disrupt my life. I wanted to, to keep on learning and growing in my daily life. Mm hmm. So, um, so how long has Pugs been around? Two years now. Two years, and so you've had a whole lot of what are just it's a really diverse roster of classes. Um, I saw beekeeping on there the other day, and you had a magic class and economics. What are some of the different things that people can learn and study up through Pugs? Uh, we're, we have pizza school. <laughs> we have forensic architecture and Portland history. We have gentrification. We have. We have like things across the board. The super interesting thing about Pugs is that it's community source. So it's what the community wants to know about and it's taught by experts in the community. So um, you just find courses that you would never see anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, you really you really do. Um, these are classes that you aren't going to find at your average, uh, you're not going to find them at PCC or PSU necessarily because these classes are able to kind of really find a special niche like Malia and Peter's uh, classes. Those aren't things that you're likely to find anywhere else. So where can people go to find out more about Pugs? Uh, Our website is PugsPDX.com, P-U-G-S-P-D-X.com. You'll see our list of courses and you'll see our catalog of all the courses we've had. Yeah, I think the super interesting thing what you're talking about is like, I mean, you just had Peter and Malia on the show and Mm -hmm. you realize like how intelligent and how knowledgeable they are, but they don't actually have degrees that would allow them to teach at like the, you know, in the current university system. Right. Yet, so all that knowledge is not shared until we create a system where it's a community that's teaching the community. Yeah, that definitely was my experience with teaching the do-it-yourself magic class. I proposed that class to a uh, more standard school here in Portland, and they were like, uh, no, I don't think so. But then when I taught it at Pugs, there were, people were really into it, and it went, it went great. It was a really fascinating class that just wouldn't have had the chance to exist outside of Pugs. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like, you know, I think the future of education is participatory and open mm-hmm. and affordable. Like, our courses are about $100. Mm-hmm. Um as opposed to the what, what I call the university industrial complex, which is hierarchical and closed. Um, so I feel like everyone is a teacher and everyone's a learner at Pugs. And that's sort of the model that we want to see everyone participate in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that uh, listeners out there, if you have an area of expertise that you're, you know people would be into, uh, Pugs is also worth checking out as a teacher because um, you can offer classes there that you're just not going to find anywhere else. Well, Douglas, thanks for coming on the show, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing more from Pugs and more exciting classes in the future. Okay. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah. And that's our show. Thank you to our guests, Peter Michael Bauer, Malia Seward, and Douglas Soy for telling us about their ideas, sharing what's going on with Pugs. You can check them out at www.pugspdx.com. 
I'd also like to thank X-Ray FM Studios, as always, producer Brandy Gaudette, audio engineer Gene Forte from Blue Heron Studio for putting the show together. Tune in for future episodes as we talk to people about inspiration, creativity, and mind-expanding ideas here on the Magic Hour. It's never a bad trip.